All right, if you open your Bibles to the book of Ruth, <clears throat> that's where we're at. Hey, real quick, could you put that picture up of Haddon again? Of his baby? You notice how big that pacifier is? It's like half her face, you know? You see her, she's a teeny little baby. I was just like blown away. Saw her last night for the first time, and it's like, you know, four pounds is like big for the Chris Rich family because they're uh, little babies, but man, just a beautiful little girl, so that's it. And also, the pastor's coffee is actually at my house. Um, so it'd be great to you come and hang out with my four kids in our chaos, but that's what it's going to be like, and uh, hopefully you will uh, enjoy that. But we're in Ruth, and uh, we've been going through Judges, and Ruth um, hits right about Judges 9 and 10. We got through Judges 9, and then we're going to uh, spend four weeks. We're in the second week here of Ruth. That's why I put the little Ruth kind of study guide uh, inside the bulletin. So last week we talked about the first chapter, the first uh, part of the story of Ruth, and it was a really a dark picture. It was a dark picture of pain and of loss and of feelings of hopelessness. And that was really the purpose of that chapter, to kind of give you this, this dark picture. And we were introduced to a family, uh, the family of Elimelech, who uh, is living during one of the most uh, dark and unfaithful times in Israel's history, the time of Judges that we have been looking at for the previous 15 weeks. And this family experiences during this time just tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. And with every verse, I mean, it starts with famines, then there's death, then there's infertility. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And they are in such desperate need of rescue by the end of the first chapter. And we see a little insight into kind of where suffering comes from without being really deeply theological, and that is suffering sometimes comes, quite frankly, through bad decisions that we make that we have some level of control over, and then sometimes they come from just really bad circumstances that we have absolutely no control over. Uh, But suffering is certainly real, and at the center of the suffering is uh, two widows, an Israelite widow named uh, Naomi and an Israelite, uh, I'm sorry, a Moabite widow named Ruth, who's her daughter-in-law. And even though the book is named after Ruth, I think if if you read the book carefully, it's only four chapters, I really hope you read it through outside of Sunday mornings, uh, you'll see that the story is actually centered a lot on Naomi. Um, and Ruth stays pretty consistent uh, throughout the whole story, as does Boaz, but you see Naomi change quite a bit. And I think if we're honest, I think most of us probably experience pain and loss and tragedy pretty similar to Naomi in some ways. Um, not completely unfaithful, maybe we have good theology, but our pain becomes so big that maybe our God becomes very small in the midst of it. And that leaves us feeling bitter, and maybe understandably so, and it leaves us feeling somewhat hopeless, like we see Naomi. But by chapter 4, and really through this chapter and chapter 3, you'll see Naomi begin to change, see new hope birthed in her life. And by the end of the story, you really have Ruth and Naomi looking almost exactly the same. They both experience the same things, the same experiences, but Naomi is the one that's really experienced some real transformation, um, and, and they both are rescued. So that, to that end, we're starting to see hope. Ruth chapter 2 couldn't be any more different than Ruth chapter 1, 
And Ruth chapter 1 revealed how big our need is, how desperate our situation is. And Ruth chapter 2 is this amazing picture of how big God is. It's really crazy. I'm going to show you all kinds of connections and things that you're going to see God as this amazing just conductor orchestrating all these things so that his plan comes to fruition, stuff that they have never thought about in history and stuff going forward all the way to Jesus Christ. And it's way too big and mysterious to explain, but we see very, very clearly that whatever, whatever chaotic circumstance we find ourselves in, it might just be a little irritation, it might be a major devastation like they experience here, but whatever chaotic circumstance we find ourselves in, we can trust, we can believe that God has been, is, and will be working invisibly the entire time. That is the God of the Bible. And our confidence doesn't come from the presence or absence of suffering. Our confidence comes from the deepest conviction that we have a God who is sovereign, who is really in control of all things, a God who is good, and a God who is providentially involved. And we use a word called providence. The idea that God is involved in His creation, not distance. That He is carefully guiding and directing every part of my life to the extent that what I think, what I think I see, and what I think I know may not actually be the true reality. That what I experienced, there's something going on behind that that I may never fully understand, maybe never fully see it come to manifestation, but I can trust that God is at work. And so we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 1, and go through and see how God has brought this, these two widows in this situation in the most amazing way. Verse 1 says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And he said to her, she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So the first verse introduces us to Boaz because he becomes kind of the key figure in this story. He is very much the individual that that pictures Christ most clearly, the Redeemer, the one who rescues and saves, and that calls him this this worthy man. It emphasizes his greatness. A worthy man of the clan, which is often translated uh, mighty man of valor, maybe in some of uh, your versions that you might be reading. But this word comes from the word for warrior, and it carries the idea of a man with a good reputation, a man with integrity, a man with honor, and a man with great influence in his city, a man who has great power, a man who has great wealth, and throughout the entire book of Judges, and then into Ruth, there is no other man identified this way. The writer is trying very hard to, to kind of lift up this man. It really is picturing, I believe, the greatness of Christ, the honor of Christ, who he actually is, um, and this, you will see, this man is, is very godly. And on the opposite of that, you have Ruth, 
in the same first couple of verses, the second verse says Ruth the Moabite. The writer specifically adds the Moabite. It doesn't just say Ruth. We've already been introduced to Ruth. And the reason why, because the writer's trying to emphasize the lack of greatness in this young lady. Now, being a Moabite was um, a bad thing, a frowned upon thing. She was a foreigner, obviously a Moabite. She was a widow, and she was despised, and she was marginalized. She was despised because, if we do a little bit of a history lesson, there were two sons. One was named Moab, and one was named Ammon. Ammonites, Moabites. Okay? They came from two daughters who were the daughters of a man named Lot. Lot was the man who was in Sodom, was saved out of that by God. Their husbands decided to stay there and die with everybody. So the daughters, hid in the hills with their dad, decided to get him drunk so they could get pregnant and have children and continue the line. So Moab and Ammon are from the incestuous relationship of Lot and her daughters. So right there, there's ooh, right? The ooh factor, the you're Moabite, there's a history of that. There's a tension between Israel um, and just, just the, the yuckiness, if you will, or the history of their experience and their origin. Partnered with, the law condemned both Moabites and Ammonites to not being part of the assembly. In Deuteronomy chapter uh, 23, says this, no Ammonite or Moabite, so this is the law they're functioning under, may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pether of Mesopotamia, to curse you. So God is not a big fan of the Ammonites, not a big fan of the Moabites, and neither is Israel. So this Ruth the Moabite comes in, Naomi has already arrived saying, I went away full, I've come back empty. Oh yeah, here's Ruth though, right? She doesn't even really recognize her, though she does love her. But in terms of the eyes of the people, she's despised, she's marginalized, she can't even be part of the services they have together. So she's really a nobody in this situation. So you got Ruth, Mrs. Nobody, and Boaz, Mr. Everything, okay? And there's a huge contrast, and that's important as you go forward, especially as we push forward into Christ, talk about who we are and who Christ is. Okay, that's where it's going to head. Stick with that. Ruth now, um, as we see though, she is helpless, but she is not hopeless. And so Naomi, sitting in her depression, can muster the strength to basically say three words as Ruth asks to go and glean. Like, yeah, go ahead, go my daughter, fine, right? Ruth knows that when they need livelihood, they got to do something. And I actually believe that Ruth is acting in faith, going into the fields to glean Why Naomi sits there still bitter, still upset. And it's pretty dangerous for her to go. We'll talk about gleaning for a second. But basically, she's going to go into the fields, which are surrounded or full of young men. And she's going to hopefully request if she can glean from the fields, and they're hopefully going to show her favor. She says, I hope someone will show me favor. Why? Because they didn't have to. And if they did, they didn't have to treat her very well. And even remember, this is the time of judges. So what that means is the number one thing that they've done every time, that being Israel, is break the first commandment. 
The first commandment to have no other gods before me, they've been really good at slamming that one. Okay? And in fact, anytime you ever sin, that's the first commandment you break. So Israel's been great about failing in that commandment. So the reality or the hope for them to obey some obscure gleaning law is probably unlikely. And so there's some fear going in. There's a possible, like, this situation could get a lot worse. But she's going to go glean. Glean was in the law, and it basically made sure that the poor had means to be fed and cared for. And so the law basically said that you are to uh, allow the poor or those who request to go through your fields after you've gone through to reap the harvest. And you would go and anything you dropped or anything you missed, you wouldn't go through a second time. You'd allow them just to have it. And they would go through and take it later. Now, this law was a way of God providing for the poor. And we see that's very important to provide for the poor. It's part of God's law. Um, But it wasn't God's welfare program. What I mean is this verse and this section on gleaning has been really abused by a lot of people on all kinds of uh, different places. But what we see is that God says something very specific, specific about this law. First of all, He blesses those who provide the field. Those who reap and leave some as they're to do, He will bless them. And I'll read it in a second. But we also see that those who are going through and taking advantage of the gleaning law are also being blessed. Not only because of the food, but they're being blessed with the dignity of having to work for it. They don't have to work maybe as hard as the reapers, but they're allowed to work because work was part of the Garden of Eden. Work was part of God's plan for us to give us uh, dignity, to give us hope. It was just part of what His design was for us. So we see that. Here's the law in Deuteronomy 24. It says, When you reap your harvest, speaking to the field owners, in your field, and if you forget the sheaf in the field, shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Why? That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So if you do this, if you take care of the poor, as I've commanded you in this way, you'll be blessed in how you work. You'll be more fruitful. And when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you gather the grapes every vineyard, you shall now strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Obviously, we're dealing with widows here. In verse 22, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So, the ultimate goal was to remind them, as you give, you were slaves once and I saved you. Don't forget that. Okay? I brought you out of Egypt. You did not deserve it. You did not earn it. And I brought you out with all the gold of Egypt as well. So he blessed them incredibly in reminding of that. And I think it's interesting because what we're going to talk about is the providence of God, all the things that have come into place. This is such an obscure law, and this is the only place in Scripture where it's employed. And if you go through the law, which I know you probably do in your spare time a lot, reading through the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, okay, you will find there's some really strange, obscure laws. Gleaning is certainly one. But suddenly you realize that in all the minutiae that God has put together, He has actually a plan for all of these things. And we happen to see where this one comes into play here. So Ruth begins to reap in the fields, and the text says she just happened to come upon Boaz's 
field. Naomi's relative that we've already been told. Now, this statement is used by the writer not to say that, well, she's just really lucky. Like, wow, what fate. Okay? In fact, it's used as a literary tool to kind of undermine what's happening here, the rational explanation. It's like, yeah, she'd literally be like, well, she just happened. You can imagine a guy saying that. Because there's nothing just happened about it. There's no luck involved. There is certainly a question for all of us to go, how did this happen? And we come to the conclusion that God is orchestrating and guiding and directing all things to come together for his purposes. So let me tell you about some of the things that have just happened so far in the story. Okay? Ruth and Naomi just happen to come back to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. Well, what's that? The beginning of barley harvest was the time of Passover. What was Passover? Passover was the celebration of God providentially releasing them and freeing them from Egypt. So they were, the whole city is memorializing God's sovereignty, God's goodness, God's provision as they come in, which is really what this is all about. She, Ruth, just happens to come to Boaz's field, who just happens to be a bachelor in his old age, just happens to be a godly man, for that matter. She just happens to find favor in the reaper's eyes, which would have been somewhat unusual, allowing her to actually reap in the, or glean in the field. And she just happens to start gleaning when Boaz just happens to show up to check out his field. And all of this just happens to be happening in the city of Bethlehem, the city that as Christians has been memorialized by Scripture as the birthplace of Jesus Christ. Wow, what a quinky dink, right? No, there is no quinky dink. There is God going, dude, 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 let me show you how stinking awesome I am to be able to orchestrate all these things in ways that you can't possibly comprehend. Why? Because my ways are so above your ways, even if I told you, you'd be confused and irritated because you can't get it. Okay, I'll shut up then, right? He is orchestrating things, and it gets even crazier and crazier. Verse 4, all the way to 10, says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, said to the reapers, The Lord be with you, to all his workers, right? And they answered, The Lord bless you. You're like, wow, what a great work environment. It'd be amazing, right? Here comes the boss. The Lord bless you. The Lord be with you, right? Well, you find that these guys, as much as they're saying that, I don't know how godly they actually are. It says, Then Boaz said to his young man, to his foreman, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Well, I believe he's seen Ruth actually walk up the field at this point, and that's why he had sees her. Verse 6, And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Everyone knows the story. Small town. Probably a couple hundred people. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came. So she requested to glean. They said, all right, go ahead. She came and she has continued gleaning from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And that's important. Except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one. 
Okay? I actually believe that he, she's on her way out at this point. And that's why he says that. Put that on the shelf. But keep close to my young women. And let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Again, important that he would just say that kind of unsolicited. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Verse 10, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Alright, so Boaz arrives. It's my contention that she's actually walking off the field at this point. He doesn't recognize her, so he asks the foreman, Whose wife is she? Whose daughter? Who is this girl that I see here? And the foreman doesn't know her name, but says she's the Moabite who came back. And according to him, she had requested, obviously, to glean. And they had allowed her to glean, and she had done so for most of the morning until time of rest, which now she's leaving. So it's my contention that something happened. And what I actually believe, it's likely because of what Boaz says, that as godly as these young men appear to be, she had been harassed in some way. I believe she was gleaning, she took a rest, Actually talks about going to a shelter. If you look in the Hebrew, I believe that's where they had drawn water and left it. She had gone over there to get water. Something happened. Enough to make her go, I'm out of here. And it makes sense knowing that the situation, the context, young men in a time period that's very dark, it was common for women to be, especially foreign women, women that weren't part of it, to be vulnerable. He stops her from leaving. He invites her to glean in his field. He's like, no, please, glean in my field. Don't glean anywhere else. Work with my female servants, and the young men won't touch you. Now, you'll notice he's talking to his foreman. Then he turns and he yells at Ruth, talks to her as she's coming. So the foreman's there, right? The young man, it says, but he's probably the foreman. Stay in the field, don't leave, stay with the young women, the young men won't touch you. Right? He says it right there. It's like the first ever sexual harassment policy right there. Right? He is like, you touch her, it's going to be business with me. And he protects her. He provides for her. He's like, in fact, you go ahead and drink as much water as you want that the young men get. You know, the guy's like, And Ruth is overwhelmed. So overwhelmed. And again, knowing her situation, knowing who she is, Boaz shows incredible compassion and she can't, she can't believe it so much she puts her face down and she almost is in a worship stance. She's like, why, why would you do this? Why would you, I'm a foreign woman. Why would you ever do this? I'm both foreign to you. I don't know you. You don't know me. I'm foreign to this land. I'm foreign to everything. And I was struck by, honestly, how unworthy Ruth feels. And how unlovable she feels. How maybe even unredeemable, unwilling, you know, no need for, or able to be rescued that she feels. She's very, very conscious in the forefront of her mind of the fact that her culture does not appreciate her, does not value her. She is a widow, she is foreign. She is destitute. She has nothing. And her question is just like, why, why would you ever love me? 
why, why, why would I be loved? And for me, it's this picture of someone who really understands the grace of God. Like when you understand the greatness of Christ, the joy of Christ, the beauty, the power, the greatness, all the things that Boaz, an earthly way, you go, okay, times that by like one zillion. I don't think that's a number, but really big, infinite number, and the greatness of Christ and the greatness and the beauty and the wealth and all those things that Christ has, the creator, and yet he looks down at this unworthy person, me. He looks and sees all my brokenness, all of my sin. Now, more sin than I can even identify. And we don't think that. Like, if God gave you a piece of paper, like a, you know, a big roll of butcher paper and a pen, said, just go ahead and write down every sin you've ever done. Even if you like, had a photographic memory, you would never be able to write down every sin you've ever committed, the thoughts you've had, the times you were indifferent when you ought love. You never would remember, you would never know if you could remember the depth of your sin. And yet Jesus Christ looked at my unworthiness, my unlovableness, my broken rebelliousness and said, I'm going to love you. And I'm going to protect you, I'm going to care for you and provide for you. That kind of grace, knowing who I am, and who, like, what, who am I, is I think the reaction you see from Ruth here. And she is blown away how much she is loved. And she begins to experience from that point grace upon grace upon grace, having experienced tragedy upon tragedy. Here's what Boaz does. She says why, and he answers her. Verse 11, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to the people who you did not know before. Verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Huge verse. Verse 13, Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not your servant. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted. He passed to her roasted grain. It reminds me of Christ sitting with sinners, eating with sinners, being condemned for doing so. This great man is sitting with her, passing her a roll, having a meal with her, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, so she gets up to finish the day. Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. So let her glean in the good stuff. And do not reproach her. Don't accuse her of stealing. Don't accuse her of anything. Let her go. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her. The stuff you guys have gathered already. Start throwing it down for her as she's walking. And don't rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, which is, some have said, between 100 and 200 liters. A lot of stuff. Boaz shows this incredible, redemptive grace in response to what he calls her faith, and he praises her radical abandonment of, really, her family, of a life that she had, and a radical commitment to God and His people, through her commitment to Naomi. 
And in faith she had done, we talked about this, something that didn't make any sense. And she had walked with conviction this past path that was totally foolish. A path where she, the only thing she was guaranteed was death. In faith that God might be gracious. And he describes her as having taken refuge under the wing of God. And we should all be familiar with the analogy of, of God. And not, not that he's a chicken, but obviously that he is an eagle caring for, for his young and But what we see here is, I think, incredible. Because even though Boaz identifies God as the source of blessing, prays that God will repay her, he acts to bless her. Catch that? May the Lord repay you. May the Lord bless you. Then he blesses. See, God's grace typically doesn't fall out of the sky in the laps of the needy. It comes through the faithful actions of men and women who know the grace of God. And that's what we see Boaz doing. He takes no credit. He doesn't say, by the way, I'm one of your redeemers. Although we see in chapter 3, he knows he is. He never takes any credit for that. He provides for her. He gives to her, he cares for her, he protects her, and he gives God all of the glory and none for himself. We need very careful as we consider the grace that we've experienced, how much of that grace is coming out in our own lives blessing other people. Because God is known not just through nice sentiment and like, you know what, I'll pray for you. I'm going to pray that the Lord fills your belly. James speaks about how shameful that is in his letter for you to say, you know what, go and be warmed and not give him anything to be warmed. God is made known very often and his grace is made known through doing and through blessing. Not for your credit, not even for your benefit. At this point, Boaz, the benefits for him are inconvenience, difficulty, cost, Maybe loss of reputation as he's protecting this foreigner. But he is giving God glory as he blesses this undeserving, unlovable, unwanted woman. Now, here comes the rub and all the providence comes together. I sat and asked myself, why is Boaz doing this really? Not what his motivation is, but why? Why does he act? And I think a lot of us believe, like, you know, a guy, a guy does something this gracious because the Holy Spirit comes in, and like a puppeteer is like, I'm Boaz, right? And I'm going to go do these things. And he's making him do these things. And I don't necessarily think that happens. I do believe the Spirit moves. I do believe the Spirit inspires. I do believe the Spirit pushes. I do believe the Spirit stops us at times. But there's a lot that happens in the providence of God who's been guiding and directing history to bring about things in such a way that it becomes natural inclination to desire because of the people who are acting. Let me just explain this to you. Our Creator created everything that makes you who you are. Everything. He has guided and directed, I believe, your life and my life in an infinite number of ways. Through people and interactions, some people that you've really liked and some people you've hated. But God has used that person to irritate you, to move you, to shape you. I believe that there have been different and good desires, bad ones, good ones that we've had. We've made decisions 
Some we felt really in control of. Some where circumstances were totally out of our control. But I believe that our Creator has invisibly orchestrated all these things so that, number one, He might be revealed as God and Lord of all. And that we might experience and see that His good plan is good and that it will come to pass. So let me give you some of the things that you see this story. Okay, The things God ordains. God ordains when and where you live right now. The fact that you live in the year 2012 with the culture we live in, with the time period that you live somewhere in this area, that you live in the northwest where it is never sunny even in the summer, okay? you've been shaped and put here by God. Acts 17.26, as Paul is speaking to Greeks, says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. He's put you here. I believe God ordains how long we live and when we die. We see that in the first chapter of Ruth. Elimelech goes off to Moab to live, and he dies. And his son died. We see God is the one who decides, you're done. God knows where every one of us, when every one of us, and how every one of us is going to die. A death never surprises God. Ever. Neither does a birth or lack thereof. God is the one who brings life. God is the one who takes life. He's in charge of it all. And you see that in Ruth. God is the one who ordains what we look like. Yep, sorry. God's fault. Okay? What we look like, how we think, your personality has been made by God, designed by God, orchestrated and guided and shaped by God. We had a conversation in the elder board, uh, in our elder meeting, because we talked about the scripture we're going to preach, and we said, um, one guy was like, I think that Boaz was helping her because she was just really hot. (laughs) And he wasn't trying to be flippant. He's like, I think she was really good looking, and that's why he noticed her. And I said, no way, man. He's noticing because she's leaving the field. And I mean, who knows? We have disagreements about it, right? Maybe she was just, you know, maybe Boaz was just nasty looking, and she was, I don't know. But how you look and how she looked, how we look, it's all by God. Blame Him. But what does that matter? Here's why it matters. I am trying to figure out why Boaz, like, maybe he's just like, you know, he just like, wow, that woman is just, oh my goodness. That happens, right? I married my wife because there was at one point I went, wow. Now, yeah, why was I into that? I don't know, but I'm into Kaylin. That's why I'm into her. That's what I like. Why? I like peanut butter too. Can't explain that. I just like it. Okay? I'm not going to analyze it and put it on a map for you. I like it. Okay? God also ordains how we're raised. The parents we had. Some of you are like, oh, I didn't like that. Does anyone know who Boaz's mom was? It was Rahab. You know who Rahab is? You go backwards to Joshua, where this all started. Okay, Joshua comes into the promised land. General Joshua leading the army. They're going to attack Jericho as the first city. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. You know the song, right? Sent spies into Jericho who 
connected with a prostitute, Canaanite prostitute named Rahab. Rahab hid the spies to make sure that they could get out. She basically said, hey, by the way, uh, we're going to come and destroy the city. She's like, okay, I'll hide you. I believe that's going to happen. I believe in your God. Okay. They leave. They say, we'll say, we will protect you. They are protected. Everyone else die. Everyone dies. The city is destroyed. Rahab becomes part of the people of Israel and marries into it. What was Rahab? Rahab was a marginalized prostitute. Not real popular with Israel other than the fact she was faithful. She demonstrated faith when there was really pretty much hopelessness in their situation. How do you think Rahab raised Boaz? Boaz grew up with a mom who had all kinds of experiences, all kinds of stories, and one major story was about faith. And I actually believe Boaz saw in Ruth what probably reminded him of his mom. A woman who was marginalized, a woman who was was, um, despised, a woman who in chapter 3, some would mistake maybe as a prostitute even. And yet he saw her faith. And that's when he went, whoa, mama. That attracts me. Why? It's history. What you see is the story, God working these amazing things in the midst of this dark thing of judges. You have the story that started way back in Jericho, shaping Rahab giving birth to Boaz, Boaz growing up in the people of God, coming to a place. Meanwhile, Ruth has been born over Moab, all coming down to one point. You'll see Boaz and Ruth get together. And who does that lead to? Jesus Christ. Is God in control of things? Well, you bet he is. And who are we to judge God, to ask God to, oh, I don't understand. Yeah, I'm sure you don't. I'm sure Rahab couldn't have told her story the way it ended up. But God knows it. He ordains everything. He ordains who we marry, if we marry. He ordains where we work, what we like to do. Boaz hasn't married yet. Boaz has a field. Why is he so successful? Why is he so great? He has opportunity now to bless her like no one else could. And he orchestrates without doubt. He ordains all of the just happens and the timings and the meetings and all these things as they work in the perfect way that they do. Does he give us the cliff notes? No. But every now and then you get books like Ruth that says, oh, by the way, this is happening. And the reality you think you see may not be the reality. Awesome. God is big. God is powerful. Let's close it up. Last verses. I will say this. God's providence is not intended to paralyze us. We sometimes are like, well, if God's in control, I'm just not going to do anything. Um, the fact that God is sovereign and the fact that God is good and in control of all things and lovingly involved in all things, carefully bringing about His perfect plan, that should free us to live. It should free us to make decisions. It should free us to take some risks. It should free us to trust that God is in control so I don't have to fear being hurt. I don't have to like avoid disillusionment. I don't have to like not take any risk and just make sure I be wise and make wise decisions, but no fear. God has you. 
And this is what hope Ruth finds, and it actually brings hope to Naomi as well. Verse 18 says, she took it up, all this ton of barley flour she had, took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her the food she had left over after being satisfied from eating with Boaz. And her mother-in-law said, where did you glean today? I mean, where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you, because I thought for sure you'd be ignored. And she told her mother-in-law whom she had worked and said, well, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And you can imagine Naomi like, She said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers, which is a legal term that we'll talk about next week. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he has said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you should go out with this young, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So hope, in the end, begins to return as their suffering is temporarily relieved. And she has enough flour. She has about ten times what she should normally have. She has enough flour, basically, to feed them for about two weeks. And if she continues through the harvest, which would go through the wheat harvest, which is about Passover to Pentecost, over just about two months, she would probably have enough, if it produces as much as it did this time, to feed them for a year. But for the most part, and this is the strange thing, we see that Naomi and Ruth's situation hasn't really changed. The last verses, well, they're living together. They're safer, they're a bit more secure, but they're still unwed widows, still living alone together, still surviving day to day. And this is where it comes together. We say, you know what? They and we need much more than just relief. There is no real hope. There is no real hope in God's plan if His ultimate goal is only to relieve our earthly pain and suffering. That's not enough. It might make us feel temporarily good and satisfied, but there is no goodness, there is no security in God writing me a check to hell my situation if my situation isn't transformed entirely, altogether. I don't just need relief, I need more. And if I don't think I need more, you don't understand the desperateness and the hopelessness of your situation. I mean, think about it. It's like if I've lost the use of my arms and legs, I'm just a you know bobber and I'm swimming in a disease-infested pool of water with piranhas. Got the picture? I need more than someone coming along like, you can do it. Here's some water wings. I bet you can get out. I need someone to come in and grab me and pull me out and rescue me. That's what I need. More than relief. I need rescue. And Naomi knows this. She knows they need more than relief in the long term. And when Naomi hears the name of the man who owns the field, she has hope for redemption. She has hope for rescue. 
Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. And I'll again go in detail next week, but he is one of the men who is legally charged with the responsibility to rescue them both. And rescue is taking them completely out of their situation, giving them a brand new name, a brand new identity, a brand new life. And Boaz, without doubt, pictures Jesus Christ, as I said, a great man, truly fully God, fully man, but a great man with great wealth, the most wealth, the most power, who enters into our suffering, which is what Boaz did. And he does more than just relieve it. He rescues us completely out of it. And like Boaz will see do, he does more than just give food, and just give money. He enters into a genuine relationship with Ruth, just as Christ enters into a relationship with us. And funny how Christ describes our relationship to him as a marriage. Just as Boaz will eventually be married to Ruth. Boaz, just as Jesus, looked at what is unlovable. He looked at what was unworthy, at what was unwanted. And he cleansed her. He cleanses us. And Jesus, through faith in his death and his resurrection, he forgives our sins and he cleanses all of the stuff that others have brought into our life, that circumstance have brought into life that made us bitter and broken. And then he removes our fears and he removes our shame and he frees us to live not just a better life, a new you, Sam 2.0, an entirely new life. The old is gone, the new has come. Old Sam's buried, new Sam is alive, and Christ is living through him. That is rescue. That is redemption. And the crazy thing, just when we think, like, well, if I could just get away from the suffering, he does this not apart from pain or suffering, but through the cross. He transforms what we see as terrible into something that doesn't destroy our faith, but actually creates it and refines it by a power too mysterious to comprehend through faith, we see that within that suffering, just like the suffering of Ruth, He gives us new life, new strength, new joy, and a hope that is not just food and shelter, but a hope, what Peter is going to call the living hope in the resurrection, which is there's more than this. There's more than this. So if you'd stand with me, we're going to close with a verse out of 1 Peter. Because I know there are people suffering. I know there are people in trials. And the only thing I want to proclaim and not even try to persuade or tell you all the 15 reasons why you should believe this is that God is in control. And that your hope is not in anything in this world, but in that which is outside this world. We're going to end with a passage out of 1 Peter chapter 1, and here's what it says. If you'd bow your eyes and just listen carefully to the words of God speaking, this will be our prayer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith that's more precious than gold that perishes though it be tested by fire, that your faith may be found and result praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father God, teach us about Your providence. Help our unbelief that in the midst of this chaotic experience, You are in control. You are working things out for good.